Welcome to Phenomenon Radio, the show that covers thought-provoking breakthroughs in the fields of UAP UFOs to discover fascinating truths, first-hand accounts, and investigative insights into the expanding confluence of physical and mental exposure to this worldwide phenomenon. Hosted by Emmy Award-winning investigative journalists, Earth Files reporter and editor, Linda Moulton Howe and world-renowned experiencer of the 1980 Rendlesham Bentwaters incident, John Burroughs. And now, leading off tonight's program, here's Linda Moulton Howe. On January 2nd, 2015, I received an email from a retired U.S. Navy Petty Officer, first class flight engineer, who asked me to only call him Brian. Now 61 years old, he entered the U.S. Navy in 1977 and retired 20 years later in 1997. He provided Earth Files his DD-214 documents and other certificates of service, including an Antarctic Service Medal given to him on November 20th, 1984. He wanted me to know that his C-130 crew encountered high strangeness while they were flying cargo and doing rescues in Antarctica from 1984-85 period to 1997. Several times, he and the C-130 crew all watched silver disks darting around in the sky over the trans-Antarctic mountains that separate East Antarctica from West Antarctica. Brian and his crew also saw a huge football field-sized hole in the ice, only about 5 to 10 miles from the geographic South Pole that was supposed to be an air sampling station, but in a no-fly zone. During an emergency medevac crisis to speed up their trip, the crew flew across that no-fly zone and apparently saw what they were not supposed to see, an alleged entrance to what was rumored to be a human and ET science collaboration research base under the ice. Then, at a camp near Marie Birdland, some dozen scientists disappeared for two weeks, and when they reappeared, Brian's flight crew got the assignment to pick them up. Brian says the scientists would not talk, and their faces, quote, looked scared, close quote. Brian and his flight crew received several orders at different times to not talk and were sternly told, you did not see the ice hole, you saw nothing. But Brian was never asked to sign an official non-disclosure statement. So now that he's retired, he has decided to share what he has seen and experienced because he is convinced that non-humans were and probably are now working on this planet. He said in his email to me, quote, talk among the flight crews was that there is a UFO base at South Pole. And some of the crew heard talk from some of the scientists working at the pole that EBAs, extraterrestrial biological entities, worked with the scientists beneath that air sampling camp, large ice hole near the pole, close quote. To both Brian's and my surprise, 
after radio interviews about the 1980s to 1990s phenomena in Antarctica. One year ago or so in June 2016, Brian received a surprising and disturbing phone call at his office, where he now works on aerospace projects. After this short break, Brian will join Phenomenon Radio, and we will begin with that Navy C-130 flyover, that big hole in the ice near the South Pole. You're listening to Emmy Award-winning investigative journalist Linda Moulton Howe, host of Phenomenon Radio Live, right here on KGRARadio.com. Tonight's special guest will join the show right after these messages. Stay with us. The KGRA Digital Broadcast Station has been your contact for live UFO paranormal talk radio worldwide. Bringing you the top names and research and investigations seven nights a week. Our listeners connect to the KGRA on various platforms like TalkStream Live, TuneIn, Spreaker, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and many more. Now, you can stream your favorite paranormal talk radio shows with our new fully integrated custom KGRA mobile apps for Android and iPhones. Listen to your favorite paranormal talk shows from any mobile device 24-7, free with smartphone or tablet. Utilize custom features to access news, show pages, archives, contests, events, and live interactive chat rooms. Set show notification alerts and never miss your favorite live programs. All free and available to download in Google Play or the iTunes App Store. So you went to dinner last night, you had your favorite pasta, or maybe you had a heavy spicy meal and it left you, get the tea.com. Maybe you mowed down a huge steak and your plumbing is all plugged, get the tea.com. Our super strength tea will take care of your occasional, it's all organic and non-GMO. Get rid of, we have so many great supplements, but our super tea is number one. Get the tea.com. That's get the tea.com. Your official contact for the best alternative talk on the planet. KGRARadio.com Thank you all for joining us tonight on this special edition of Phenomenon Radio Live with our very special guest joining us tonight, Brian S. To start tonight's interview, here's Linda Moulton Howe. Linda? Thanks, Race. And Brian, welcome to Phenomenon Radio. I have always felt that yours is one of the uh, most important from a military voice about an area on this planet that is so mysterious. And every month and year now, it seems that we're getting more whistleblower 
kind of rumors, and in some cases talking to us straightforwardly off the record, that there is some kind of an alien base in Antarctica, and that you yourself, as you wrote in that first email to me back in uh, January of 2015, that you had 300 times you had flown with a C-130 crew uh, over and around the South Pole. So I wondered if you could start tonight and try to explain to the general audience what is it like to be in a C-130 crew that is your your base of operations is that entire mysterious continent of Antarctica. Well, thank you, Linda. It's a it's a pleasure and an honor to work with you again. Um, I really enjoy um, uh, when we have our conversations, and you are one of the few people that really understand, you know, my story that that I told to you a couple of years ago in that email I sent you. Um, Antarctica is a pretty desolate place. Um, the, the crews uh, usually are working 12-hour uh, days, and the majority of that is actually flying. Um, during this, the summer season down there, which is from September to the end of February, it's daylight 24 hours a day. So um, you can't tell you know, when it's time to go to bed. So the rooms that we stay in have the curtains, blackout curtains over them so that when you're uh, on crew rest and you've gotten back from a flight and you're getting ready to go 12 hours later out on a mission, you've got to be able to have some sem semblance of, of being able to go to sleep. So um, it, it, in that respect, physically, it's, it's very demanding on a person because your, your, your body rhythm is completely you know, gone. So you're, you're, you're doing this for six months. Um, the crew uh, on deployment, um, we usually, the crew is usually a set, a group of people. We fly with each other all the time. Um, other than that, the during the summer season when we're back, or the winter season when we're back in uh, uh, California training for the next season, uh, we're always flying with different people, different pilots, different um, enlisted and navigators, engineers, load masters. So, but during deployment, everybody flies together all the time. So um, we get to know each other really well, and uh, we trust each other uh, with our lives because we have to down in that uh, desolate uh, continent. Um, a normal uh, uh, mission would be uh, getting up somewhere between 3 in the morning and 9 in the morning, going down uh, to the uh, ice runway or the skiway, depending on what part of the year it was and starting a pre-flight on the aircraft pre-flights at least three hours long so we, i'm down there um, looking at the airplane um, prior to that i'm in maintenance control and i'm looking at the the uh, uh, log book and the uh, discrepancy book to see what's wrong with the airplane and if the airplane is safe for the crew to fly um, get the aircraft uh, started taxi to the fuel pits myself in my loadmaster, we get the airplane loaded with the fuel that the pilots requested. The uh, pilots and the um, navigators, then they join us down later after they've been up on the on the hill debriefing in McMurdo. Uh, there's a building there that uh, the squadron VXC-6 operated out of. It was a two-story building where operations and um, um, uh, logs and records and our personnel office 
and some of the other um, administrative uh, duty office offices uh, was. And that uh, building was nicknamed a puzzle palace because nobody knew what the heck was going on half the time. So it was like a big puzzle. Uh, puzzle because of the missions were strange sometimes? Well, the... The puzzle was like we didn't know what we were going to be doing next, and it, you could have you could be doing a mission one day and going to South Pole or going to a station, and the next day you could be putting a a, a, a science team on the other side of the continent, or coming back and picking something up from Pole, and in or going flying to Christchurch and and picking up um, a bunch of cargo or scientists. And bringing them back to the continent for their um, their science missions that they do, and that would be Christchurch, New Zealand. And I'm looking at a map that you helped make for me. I'm looking down on the continent, and I am looking that McMurdo would be in the far southernmost point of West Antarctica uh, on the Ross Sea, and that if you go all the way across the trans-Antarctic mountains that sort of divide West Antarctica from East Antarctica, East being the bigger section of the continent, that all the way across uh, to the far eastern side is Davis Station, which was the Australian source for the medevac. And can you give some uh, uh, size here that if you're flying out of McMurdo, uh, all of the time from West Antarctica, how many miles would you have to be going on a medevac emergency to get to Davis Station on the East Coast? Um, you know, I can't tell you miles <laughs> because my job was basically to take care of the airplane, make sure it was safe, and back the pilots up uh, during flight and, and during emergencies. A navigator would know that as far as distance because they're the ones that are planning the route uh, from point to point to point. And uh, but flight time wise, uh, the flight from McMurdo, uh, taken off out of McMurdo, flying over the first landmark, which is called Minna Bluff, and that's just before the start of the Transantarctics. Uh, that flight to South Pole was about three hours and 10 minutes, depending on winds. And then, uh, in order to continue on to uh, 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 Davis Station on the east, east side of the continent. Uh, we would have to refuel the aircraft. And then from there, it was another three and a half to four hours that I can recall that was the time, flight time, then to Davis. So it, it was a pretty long day just getting to Davis uh, Station and, uh, and then on the ground there waiting for our medevac uh, to come out. Well, I thought uh, that it would be good to share with the audience and unfold sort of chronologically. Uh, you got assigned to Antarctica around 84 to 85, and you're in that C-130 crew. Let's start with the first high strangeness event that occurred. You're based out of McMurdo, and you get this emergency medevac call. Unfold everything that happened. Okay. Um, from what I remember is that uh, our crew was getting ready uh, that morning, and we were getting ready to go down to the uh, airfield and uh, pre-flight the aircraft and get it loaded for our mission, which was not going to the South Pole. As, and 
if I remember right, our mission was just a, a science resupply somewhere out on the on the western side of the continent. So it was just a short flight, probably an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes to that science party that, that had been put out uh, prior. Um, we got a change of mission when we had gone up to operations. And uh, they were told that uh, our crew was going to take one of our uh, our model aircraft and we were going to fuel it up, max out the gas and fly to South Pole. And then from there, we were going to top off the fuel and then fly to Davis for a, a medevac of that some that uh, some person had uh, become injured and needed to be uh, taken off uh, the continent immediately. And what happened? Well, we got to the pole. It was a normal flight. Uh, no cargo was loaded onto the um, onto the aircraft. We had uh, an extra couple people on the crew. One would have been um, our um, uh, corpsman, one of our two corpsmen that we had in the squadron, which is our like a medical um, uh, nurse type. And then our flight surgeon was brought on the aircraft, and he would have been the guy that would have been taking care of the the patient uh, after we picked him up and then all the way back to McMurdo. So we took off and we flew into uh, South Pole, uh, uneventful. Um, South Pole is somewhere around 11 to 12,000 feet above sea level. So you can imagine um, 11,000 feet of ice that uh, South Pole sits on. So we maxed out our aircraft with fuel which uh, would have maxed us out on our uh, gross weight for takeoff on skis because any place other than McMurdo, we had to use uh, um, our skis instead of landing on wheels or taking off on wheels, which would have been the early part of the season um, when on the permanent ice runway, we can use um, uh, wheeled uh, operations and that can increase our uh, our maximum load other than skis though, that reduces our load uh, considerably because of the uh, weight restrictions on the skis. Anyways, we got to pole loaded up. And while, while I was gassing up the aircraft, taking fuel on from South pole, our navigator was plotting his course from South pole over to Davis. Well, uh, unbeknownst to me um, that I did not know that we were going to be deviating until we were actually deviating. So we took off, got airborne, and the pilot was asking our navigator, okay, so um, where's where are we going to be going now? Because we're not going to be, you know, going where we thought we were going to be going. And so we were directed to fly a certain course, which happened to be going right over an air sampling station, which was approximately five to ten miles further on from the South Pole. Now, this area, we, as the as a squadron, didn't yeah, normally uh, transit. Brian, Brian, just for a second, yeah. you're, you have maps. And if I recall, when we talked, it was the captain asked the crew or the navigator, what is this no-fly zone? If we can go through that new no-fly no zone, we're going to be able to save time on this medevac issue. And that, that was the discussion about why was there a no-fly zone? Right. That discussion was happening after we took off. So we got airborne and everybody knew there was an air sampling station that way because we were briefed every time prior to our um, deployment that this was the no-fly zone because it was uh, labeled as a, a air sampling uh, station and that we weren't to fly over it. Um, so as a crew, 
we decided as a crew that we would take that direct route to Davis instead of deviating 20 miles uh, around that air sampling, which is approximately what they required us to to do if we were to have to go in that direction. And so we decided to fly right over it. So we took off out of pole. Now, remember, the altitude at South Pole is somewhere between 11,000 and 12,000 feet. So we were climbing uh, at full uh, full fuel load out of South Pole, and we were going to be climbing to about 25,000 feet for our first uh for our first altitude. And then as we burned off fuel, we would become lighter and we were able to climb higher, which also allows us to get better fuel efficiency out of our engines and extend our range a little bit. So we were taking off and we were climbing and about five to 10 miles out, somebody decided to look out the window instead of looking at their instruments and, and the radar the navigator does. And somebody said, hey, there's this big dark spot out here. And so we ended up flying, not directly over it, but somewhat offset so that we could look out the left side of the aircraft. And it was down at about a 45 degree angle. And there was this large opening in the ice where this air sampling station was supposed to be. So we kept on going and uh, made our flight. Just a second, Brian, because I remember asking you in our interview how big do you think estimate it was, and did it look like it was somewhat structured? Well, I estimated that you could have at least flown one of our aircraft into it. Uh, so the wingspan of our aircraft is somewhere around 135, 183, or 135, 138 feet uh, wide. So it would have had to have been large enough to uh, uh, accommodate that wingspan, but it was probably uh, probably more of the size of a football field, right. if you can imagine that. Okay, so now remember we're we're up climbing. You know we're already at twelve thousand feet. So by the time we were at that many miles, we were up somewhere around twenty twenty one thousand feet. So looking down, you know, at, at, at that um, area, you know, was even at that altitude, the 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 large the size of that. Uh, opening looked large and you as i recall you could see that it had like something at the beginning of a ramp or something that was going down in it that seemed to be flatter not like some accident like like it right right the way the way we were passing by that area the way where the sun was the sun was off to the left and so when it was shining down, the opening was kind of more or less, uh, uh, I don't know how, how to put this, um, in, an, in an angle so that it would be, if you were to try and fly into it, you would have to come back and go back west into it. So the sun would, would uh, shine on the, on the top of it and it would cast a shadow and then it would, you could see more of a, an upward grade coming up onto the plateau there. So it right. looked like it was de- de- um, descending down in, so like a ramp. Right. And there was another very important discussion that I remember that the uh, pilots ask you or ask the crew, why would the why would there be a no-fly zone at an air, quote-unquote, air sampling station at South Pole when the only planes that would be coming in would be like yours, would be up at somewhere between 25,000 and 35,000 feet, 
and that somebody made the comment, we're not going to affect any air sampling, so why do they have this as a no-fly zone? Right, exactly. That's what we were told. That's what we were briefed. That's the reason why we were not allowed to to transit into that area. Now, like I said earlier, is like there was nothing in that direction that we would have to go to as far as science. Okay, all the science science during that time was all on the western side of Antarctica. So, you know, you're flying. Uh, toward 90 degrees south, so basically you're flying south and then you're flying north again. Um, so there wouldn't have been anything out there for anybody to even go out to. So that kind of made it um, um, odd that we were told that we could not go over that area, other than the fact that maybe, now I, I don't know for sure, is that the exhaust from the uh, turboprops you know, would filter down onto that area if it was overflown and uh, affect their sampling readings uh, for whatever science was going on there. One thing I do want to mention is that um, when we were flying by there, um, you could see uh, like uh, lines in the in the ice or in the snow, like somebody had driven out like like uh, vehicle tracks. Mm -hmm. Okay, so like um, possibly like snowmobiles or one of the uh, uh, the tractored uh, vehicles, the the ice track, the ice catch, they called them, were making a route back and forth from the actual South Pole Station out to that opening. And uh, we can see that from our altitude. You could see it and it's very distinct. Anything in the ice that makes a line, you immediately recognize it and and and, and can uh, see it. Right, and it, it was still supposed to be a no-fly zone that did not make sense to your pilot and that it was three at least on an estimate, maybe 300 feet in diameter, the size right. of a football field in a hole that was clear and obviously people had been going out to it. Now, can you describe the kind of, uh, we'll call them rumor talk, that you guys uh, were exposed to after uh, in your like sitting down with people and talking and the guy who showed up and told you all to keep your mouth shut. Yeah. Um, I was, go I was going to um, talk about that. I want to kind of finish what our mission was to um, uh, Davis and then the trip back to South Pole to refuel what we were ended up having to do and what we were ordered to do when we came back. Okay. So if I can continue with that, um, we ended up getting to Davis uh, about four hours later, uh, landed. Uh, we're sitting on the ground with the engine still turning. Uh, they brought out the, uh, the person that was injured. We loaded them on the uh, aircraft. Um, uh, we got uh, turned around. Um, set power, took off, and was on our way back to South Pole when we started to get near that same um, that same opening that we'd crossed by when we were going to Davis. Uh, so we got within a certain, I don't know, so many miles. I think it was within like 25 miles or something. And the reason I remember that is because our navigator said, okay, we're coming up on that uh, opening we saw again because the navigator tracks where we're going in, in distance and position all the time because we have to make position reports uh, to McMurdo so that they know where we're at in case something happens and we have to land on the on the on the continent. So we were going there and we got a radio call from the uh, uh, 
personnel at South Pole because we were reporting in we were so many miles out and that our estimated at South Pole was going to be at this time. But what they said was, okay, uh, X-ray Delta 04, let's call it. X-ray Delta 04, please do not uh, continue your course uh, directly to South Pole. We want you to divert, uh, make a left turn, uh, let's just say 30 degrees, and we'll give you uh, the uh, heads up when we want you to turn back on course. So that's what we did. So when we turned, we were so far away from that opening that actually we couldn't see it from where we were at. At that time, we were at like 35,000 feet on our way back to Pole. And so we got the call then from uh, South Pole, the controller there, saying, okay, go ahead and turn back on course. So we turned back on course, headed back into uh, South Pole and landed. Um, when we refueled in South Pole, uh, we didn't take on a full bag of fuel, but we put on enough to get us back to McMurdo uh, because the patient was in critical condition and we didn't want to waste any time. So we put enough gas on there just to get back to South Pole. So we, we took off and made the three-hour and 10-minute flight back pretty much really fast. And normally we, we cruise uh, about 25,000 feet from Pole to McMurdo because by the time you get up to 35,000 feet, you're on your way back down anyways for landing. So we were uh, hauling pretty good, and uh, we got back in uh, under three hours. We shaved off about 20 minutes just by, uh, uh, you know, not flying the normal airspeed that we would normally fly. We landed uh, in McMurdo, uh, taxi under the ramp. They had an ambulance waiting uh, for us for the for the uh, for the patient. Uh, we shut down engines. They offloaded him onto another aircraft. Another crew had been waiting uh, to take him back to Christchurch, New Zealand. So they offloaded him. Then uh, we put the airplane to bed. My job as the engineer uh, was to post-flight the aircraft and make sure that it was okay to fly or if anything was wrong with it, I had to write up the discrepancies and give it to our managed control people so that they could fix the aircraft for, for the next mission, for the next crew. So we went back up. Everybody got in the van and uh, drove back up to McMurdo and uh, got out, and we had to go back into um, uh, operations, or the Puzzle Palace, as we call it, and we were told that th the crew had to wait here instead of doing the normal debrief uh, with our operations guy and then going back and get something to eat and, and do whatever and then start going into crew rest for our next mission. So we were told to wait in the, in the conference room, so we all went in the conference room, and... Uh, uh, we sat down and about five, 10 minutes later, this gentleman walked in that nobody knew, wasn't part of the squadron, but he was dressed in the, the regular uh, green fatigues that everybody wore down there when they weren't um, on flight status. And he came in, had his park on, his, and his stocking cap on and came in, sat down and took all his, took his jacket off and everything and was kind of looking at all of us. And he says, okay, so um, you guys went through the... Uh, uh, no-fly zone uh, north of Pole and violated that air, air airspace restriction. And our aircraft commander says, yeah, we did. We thought it was prudent that uh, we not uh, waste any time and shave some time off our flight time to get to our, the uh, medevac that was at Davis. Uh, they, we were told it was important and not to uh, waste any time. So we made the decision to to fly over that air sampling station. Again, like we, we were talking earlier, is that there was no reason why we would have to not fly over that because we were going to be so high up that our exhaust off the engines wouldn't have wouldn't have mattered. 
the gentleman basically kind of looked around at all of us sitting at the table and looked at each one of us. And he said, okay, gentlemen, um, what you saw, you did not see. You, you were not over that area and you will not ever talk about this uh, again. Okay. And that's all he said. There was no repercussions like or any threat like, okay, and if you do talk about it, this or this is going to happen. Okay. And we all sat there kind of dumbfounded. It's like, okay, all right. So we, what did we see? So none of us thought anything of it other than this big hole in the ground. Okay. In the ice. <laughs> in the ice. Exactly. So it was like, so why is this guy making a big deal about it now and saying that uh, we can't talk about it and we didn't see it? So we all started talking when after this guy had left the room, he then got up and walked out and we all kind of looked at each other and, and we were going, okay, so what's the importance of this thing? Okay. Now we didn't think anything of what it might be at that time, but later on, um, months later during missions to South pole, our crew stopped and we had to actually, um, uh, spend some time there because we had some dignitaries VIPs that wanted to do a tour of the South Pole facility. So we were told, okay, just you know, shut down your engines and you know, leave somebody on the airplane to watch it and and fuel up again for your return trip to McMurdo. And everybody then went into the dome at South Pole. Back then, there was a ge big, huge geodesic dome that had buildings inside of it that uh, the uh, team and the scientists that stayed at South Pole, lived in. So we all went inside, and they had these basically like um, large mill vans or those those sea vans that you see on the container ships, like a big containers, and they had made those into buildings. So there was two-story ones all over, and one on top of one of the two-story ones was a, uh, a bar or a club. And so we went up there, and we were sitting around talking, and, you know, we were drinking sodas, and... Uh, trying to get warm and there were some civilians in there I, I assume were scientists and one of my uh loadmasters happened to overhear him saying something about the operation or what was going on out at the air sampling station nothing was said at that time though about what was going on it was just like general banter of a yeah we're gonna go out to the sampling station again and uh uh we're gonna do some uh uh, more talking out there, I guess. What I'm talking, I think, was the term that that was used, and that was it. So it was like kind of funny. Is like talking. What does that mean? Okay. So then later, okay, we heard we're talking to other crews, and they had heard similar things when they were at South Pole, but they heard that there was visitors that they were going out to um, uh, interact with. And I said, visitors, what did you mean by visitors? And I'm talking to the other flight crew. What do you mean by visitors? And he said, well, my impression was that they weren't human. <laughs> I said, human? You know, I said, what are you talking about? He says, it seemed to me they were talking about like an extraterrestrial or an alien because they didn't refer to them as a person. It was a visitor. And otherwise, if it had been uh, somebody like a scientist or a civilian out there doing work or construction or whatever, they would have said, hey, you know, we're going to go out and talk to Dr. So-and-so or Professor So-and-so, and, but not a visitor. So later on, when we were back in McMurdo on a, a future um, 
uh, trip back, there was another crew that was talking about that. So it was kind of like we were kind of getting together and comparing notes about what was going on at South Pole because nobody knew. So that's where the rumors came about and the talk about there being some type of uh, extraterrestrial and human uh, cooperation with something going on at that large hole in the ice. Now, can you unfold what may be a link exactly to that hole with the strange story of the disappearing scientists? Because it seems like there's a possibility that there might be a link or that where they've taken at Marie Birdland, which is in the far southwest uh, versus the pole, that we may be uh, discovering through the experiences that you guys had in, in the, as a C-130 crew, we may be getting insights that there may be a bunch of underground places from Marie Birdland to Pole to who knows how far in Antarctica. And that's what makes this story so fascinating about what happened with you, your crew and the National Science Foundation scientists. Yeah, the, the scientists um, um, event, uh, because our crew... Uh, let, let me give you a little back history on this. Um, flight crews are assigned certain science parties, okay, because of when we have to go out and drop off a team of scientists for them to do their science, um, the crew needs to know where they're going because the science team, when they initially, what's called a put-in, takes the crew out or takes the science party out there, they're the ones that uh, do the reconnoitering of the area with the help of the scientists. The scientist knows where they want to go, okay? They want to go here, and so they're showing them on the map and giving them the uh, lat latitude and longitude um, um, coordinates to, to get there. So we fly out as our own crew. Remember I said we all fly together, the same, you know, all the same people fly on, on deployment on the continent. So we're flying out there, and we're flying around this area that the scientists want to put their camp up at. And, and it was like... Brian, Go ahead. this particular event is now about one decade after the whole strange uh, big hole in the ice and the rumors that it's an extraterrestrial human collaboration point uh, near the South Pole. Now we move to 1994 to 1995, about a decade later for this experience with the scientists, right? That, that's correct. That's correct, Linda. Yeah, in the 1994 season, uh, and usually science put-ins are done at the beginning of the season, <clears throat> and they last um, up all in, all the way until uh, probably the middle of January of the following year. Uh, so this camp probably, and I can't remember the exact month, but it probably would have been put in early season. So it would have been somewhere around maybe October, middle of October, end of October. So this camp was put in. And uh, uh, during that season, and uh, so we went out and uh, did the landing, uh, offloaded all of their equipment, their their snowmobiles, their their uh, portable housing, uh, their fuel. They set up a bladder so that we could offload fuel into a, one of these uh, big rubber bladders that they would be able to store fuel in to to heat their uh, their huts and uh, run their snowmobiles. So uh, we put them in. And it was actually and kind of like the foothills of a little small mountain range. 
And so we put them in there. About two, I think you said 15 scientists, maybe, maybe two female and the rest male. Right, right. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty large party because usually science parties are only maybe five or six people. Uh, this one was a pretty good, pretty large one. And as, from what I can remember, there were probably one or two women, uh, at least one, because I remember seeing one in the back of the airplane when we picked them up. But um, they were all, I'm assuming, because <clears throat> we don't actually get personal with the with the science parties. They go out. We may talk to them, but we because some of their science is, is stuff that they don't want to talk about. You know, they don't want known until they're back in the United States and, you know, and they've got their papers written up of what their project was. So <clears throat> we didn't know exactly what they were going out there for, but they had enough stuff uh, to last them for at least a month. OK, so we um, we dropped them off. Uh, the tradition is that after we drop them off and we take off in the little known ski way that we have, we come around and kind of do a fly low flyby over it to make sure, you know, everything's okay. And then we head on back to McMurdo. Um, we were probably called back to that uh, same camp because normally the only time we would go back to that station was one to resupply them with food or fuel uh, and two to actually go and pull them out when they were ready to come out and we'd load up all their gear and, and equipment and then take them back to McMurdo and offload them there. And Brian, so, to yeah. just help the audience know, we're talking about from McMurdo, you have taken this crew of scientists that might have numbered about 15 to Marie Bird Land, which is going west from McMurdo. And at Earth Files, I have these excellent maps that you helped me with that show where the missing scientists are, where the big hole in the ice uh, and some other things we're going to talk about. It's all listed, but it helps to get an orientation where all these places is. And yeah. Marie Bird Land is to the west of the Ross Ice Shelf as well. Right. Then. McMurdo is actually station is actually uh, put on the uh, volcanic um, island uh, Ross Island, which is right where the Ross Sea is. And so our flight would have taken us uh, probably about an hour and forty five minutes to fly from McMurdo to Marie Birdland. Now Marie Birdland isn't a specific area, a specific spot. It's actually a large mass of the continent. And on that in that area, Marie Birdland is where this camp was put in. So and I can't tell you for sure exactly because I wasn't involved in the planning or in, to, in the uh, navigation of getting to there. Um, I just know that we were in a certain 20-mile area of that uh, specific spot that we were going. Um, uh, I forgot where I was at. <laughs> You had dropped the scientists and you had come back to McMurdo and you had been in McMurdo, I think, right. a, a few days. And you had made sure that those scientists heard, we want you to check in this number in McMurdo every 24 hours so that we know that you're okay. Right. But after three or four days, isn't it right? You guys ha had not heard anything. 
Well, the standard operating procedure and all the science parties know, I mean, it's part of their training, their survival training, is that every day they have to check in on radio. They've got an HF ready at radio. There is no basic phone lines or a phone or anything. So there is no cell service down there at all. So they would have to get on the radio that they took with them, a battery-powered radio, and they would call in at a certain time every day and give a status report or a situation report. And they were supposed to uh, do that. That was mandatory. If if we if McMurdo had not heard from them in two days, then they were we were supposed to uh, try and initiate contact. Normally, that would have started out with McMurdo calling them, the science party. Okay, because the normal operation is science party calls McMurdo. And then McMurdo answers and says, you know, what's your status? And I says, everything's good. And then there may be some exchange of, of information or, or say, hey, we need, uh, we need more fuel or we ran out of food or we got a broken snowmobile or, or send a mechanic or something like that. Okay, so it wasn't a few days. It was more like it was a week and a half. And we were told to go back out there. They had lost communication with that science team and they hadn't heard from them in two days. So we had to go back out since we were the crew that had put them in originally, we knew the area, we knew where the crevasse fields were so that we wouldn't end up uh, landing in a crevasse field and ending up losing the airplane. So we were the ones uh, designated to go back out. So our mission that day was to uh, go out and make contact with the science team and see uh, you know, what was happening or what was their status. So we took off and like I say, it was about an hour and 45 minute flight and you know, we took off and flew there and circled the camp where it was. The camp was still there. Um, the buildings, the snowmobiles uh, were were visible on the ground. So we flew around the camp, did a circle a couple of times, but there was no uh, movement. There was no people moving around um, in the camp. Usually when, when a C-130 flies over, you know, we're down pretty low and we're doing a circle. You can't miss that sound. And the people come out to see, hey, you know, our, you know, our males here or our milks here or something like that. But there wasn't anybody to be seen. So we ended up and made the approach into the skiway there and landed, taxied up to the uh, camp. And uh, we didn't know how long we were going to be there. So we shut our engines down. And uh, some of us got out and uh, tried to find uh, some of the sides party that was there. We couldn't find anybody. Uh, there wasn't anybody around. We looked in all the huts. Um, uh, we, we looked to see if there was uh, uh, any uh, uh, snowmobiles missing or or something like that. But there was, wasn't anything that we could see that was out of the ordinary other than the people were gone. So our navigator went over and he found the uh, HF radio and made contact with McMurdo. And the radio was working fine. There was nothing wrong with the radio. So um, we told McMurdo, well, our navigator told McMurdo that uh, there's nobody here. We, we don't know where they're at. They, they, either everybody went out uh, into the field for something or something has happened. Uh, there were no bodies. <laughs> we were expecting to, after a period of time we were there, we were expecting to find somebody, you know, uh, not alive. But as it was, there was nobody there at all. So we... Uh, Made a note in our in our log and uh, called McMurdo on our aircraft radios and told him, well, there's nobody here and we're going to come back. So we took off and just as an extra precaution, we um, we flew more than just around the camp. We flew a, a sector coordination uh, circle and within uh, out to a 15 mile radius from the camp. 
uh, making it uh, bigger circles is each rotation. And we didn't see any anything at all. We didn't even see any tracks, snowmobile tracks or anything going uh, leaving away from the camp. So we went back to McMurdo and landed. Uh, filed the report. Uh, our aircraft commander and let navigator were uh, uh, interviewed uh, by the, our CO and uh, the National Science Foundation uh, uh, person there that was the head of the, the project on McMurdo. And so that was it. So we were all wondering what the heck's going on. So about, from what I understand, from what I remember, about a week later, we were told, okay, you guys, you need to go back out to that, that science camp and pick up those people because they finally called in and said they wanted to be picked up. Now their project was supposed to be almost a month out there. And this was only three weeks in. So uh, understanding that these scientists, when they go out into the field, they're going to use every last minute of their allotted time because that's their their project. That's their science. So they wouldn't want to come back early. So we flew out there, <clears throat> did the uh, circle around the camp, and we saw people now <laughs> on the ice by the buildings. And um, they had all of their equipment. Other than the buildings, they had all their equipment, their snowmobiles, their science equipment was all packed up on a pallet and ready for ready for us to pick it up. So we landed and taxied up and our, my loadmaster opened up the back, back end and lowered the ramp down. And uh, they didn't even wait for the, the cargo to be loaded because normally the cargo gets loaded first and then we bring the passengers on. They all, approximately 15 of them, uh, just basically moved as quick as they could onto the aircraft and sat down in the seats. Uh, we loaded the equipment after. We pulled the, uh, the pallet that had all the, the uh, snowmobiles and their equipment on and uh, closed up the aircraft. And, uh, and at that point, Brian, you and the crew were so baffled because not one of those scientists that had been missing would talk to any of you, right? Right. Yeah, that's what I was, that's what I was going to uh, talk about. Um, we loaded up the aircraft. Of course, at that time, <clears throat> now operations, okay, you have to understand, you know, there wasn't really a lot of time for small talk <laughs> or find out, finding out anything at times. So nobody talked to those, to the scientists until we got airborne again. So we got airborne and we're on our way back to McBurdo. And that's when the, my loadmaster, uh, talked, you know, uh, pressed his intercom and said, Hey, uh, engineer, can you come back here for a minute? I said, yeah, I'll be, back, be right back. So I, I got out of my seat and went back there. And he said, my loadmaster looked at me and he said, none of these people will talk to me. I mean, I'm offering them food and coffee. And, and they're, they're, they're either looking down at the floor at their feet or they're looking at me and they've got this frightened look on their face. I said, really? Okay. So I said, I'll talk to them. So I went back. And one of the guys, he was kind of looking at me, he was watching me walk back in there and he was, you know, basically keeping his eyes on me. So I went up to him and I said, Hey, um, you got, you okay? And he didn't say anything. He just looked at me and his eyes were like white as, you know, they could be. And I says, where were you guys at? I mean, you guys were gone and we went over and tried to find you and you guys weren't there. And I said, what happened? And he wouldn't say anything. None of them would say a single word to us. I mean, my loadmaster on the way back, I went back up to my seat and, and got strapped in. And my loadmaster continued to try and find out, talking to different people, trying to find out what went on. And none of them would say anything. But they all had that frightened look on their face. So we landed back in McMurdo. 
the uh, pallet got offloaded. And <laughs> now that I've been thinking about this for a while, the pallet got offloaded. And as you remember, I said they were the first ones on. They were in a hurry to get on the aircraft. But when we got back to McMurdo, they weren't in a hurry to get off the airplane. In fact, I actually had – well, not me, but my loadmaster actually had to get them up and going and say, go, 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 go over your rides over there and kind of shuffle them out of the airplane because they weren't going on their own, hmm. which was weird. I, and I didn't mention that before because I, I hadn't remembered that part of it. What do you so, think was happening? What do you think was happening to them at that point? I think they were in some kind of shock. Yeah, you know, maybe like a post-traumatic stress syndrome or something like that, PTSD. I mean, it was something I had never seen before. And something had scared those people to the point that they were, you know, almost uh, uh, scared of, you know, frightened to the point of not moving. Yeah. But I know they wanted to get off of that place really quick. And so, now explain <clears throat> what happened to the scientists and the gear, it's separate tracks. Right. Um, the cargo got taken off, and uh, <clears throat> the uh, Air New Zealand Army was in, uh, was in con charge of the uh, uh, cargo movement on the ice. So they took it over up into McMurdo, and it was put in a separate building all by itself, and uh, it was quarantined. No one was allowed to go in there. And it was to stay there until it was uh, put on another airplane back to um, uh, Christchurch, New Zealand. The, the, the scientists. This is all the gear that was there at Marie Birdland with yes. at the time of the scientists going dis missing. Right. All of their stuff that we brought back on for that camp was quarantined in a, in a building. Now, in this building, there wasn't anything else. It wasn't shared with anything. It was an empty, basically Quonset-type storage building, and it was the only thing in there. Uh, it was locked. Um, we Nobody was allowed to go in there. We were told, don't go near that stuff. And we said, why? And it's like, we, we were just told it's quarantined. Don't go, where, go near it. Now, the scientists were not taken back to McMurdo. There was another one of our aircraft waiting for them to take them immediately and directly back to Christchurch, New Zealand. So we didn't hear anything uh, about what happened to them other than uh, we knew the airplane made it back because that crew and that airplane then turned around and flew back onto the onto uh, the continent and, and landed at the airfield in McMurdo. The um, equipment that had been quarantined, that all that equipment was there a week. And then it was taken down to the airfield. It was put on an aircraft, and one of our aircraft, and it was the only cargo on that aircraft. Now, also, <clears throat> because of the way uh, logistics is on the continent, you don't take an, an empty airplane uh, or just one thing on an airplane and go somewhere with it. You load that thing up to its maximum capacity so that you can uh, maximize your fuel use and your time with your crews and your airplane. But that was the only thing on one of our aircraft. It was a special mission, special flight back to Christchurch, and it was uh, offloaded at uh, Christchurch International Airport, taken over to one of the uh, cargo uh, hangars there uh, at the airport, and that was the last we heard of it. We never, we never found out uh, what happened to the scientists. We never found out what happened to their equipment. It's just that it was all taken back um, and uh, – and that was it. We never heard and from him again. And it handled so strangely. And then 
what didn't you have some more people in suits show up uh, to talk with you guys? And there were you also had more discussions with people in rumors about this. Right. Um, when we got back to McMurdo from picking them up at uh, their camp in Marie Burnland, um, we were debriefed again, like 10 years before. And uh, we were told uh, this was a different crew. I was on a different crew at this time than the one that uh, we were debriefed uh, with the operation of the medevac and the observing of the opening in the ice at South Pole. So we were taken in uh, – same room in the operations building and we were sat down and this time two guys showed up um they weren't they were not dressed in fatigues they were dressed in uh what i would consider like a suit type apparel uh, the only thing that was different was that they uh didn't have the regular uh, uh suit type shoes that, that that but they were wearing some type of uh, uh cold weather boot uh, on and so um we were told the same thing okay you guys are not going to say anything about the about this incident that that you didn't find that those scientists at marie birdland when you went to pick them up and uh and that uh, nothing was going to be said about it okay and again we weren't we weren't t asked to sign anything like the uh, first okay. time and so no non-disclosure, there is a really important follow-up that has happened recently to you and me because of the discussions about these disappearing scientists, that after this break, we will get into that and the silver discs that you guys saw over the Trans-Antarctic Mountains. Thanks, okay. Brian. This 45-minute uninterrupted segment of Phenomenon Radio is brought to you by OnlineVibes.com. Your personal connection to mind, body, and spirit. MJ and the Vibes Tribe is committed to connecting you with healing modalities that can manifest a true and healthy change in your life. Visit the website at onlinevibes.com. Tonight's special guests will rejoin the show for the second hour right after these messages. Stay with us. Listening to the KGRA Digital Broadcasting Station, Salt Lake City, Utah, and Buren, Arkansas. Hi, this is Matt Ray for My Pillow. Look, I'd forgotten what a good night's sleep was like. Then I got a hold of My Pillow. I used to wake up with neck and shoulder pain. I thought it was the new normal, but after one night of using My Pillow, my neck and shoulder pain is gone, and I'm sleeping comfortably through the night. My Pillow's patented interlocking fill conforms to your personal sleep needs. It's guaranteed not to go flat. It's washable, it's dryable, and it's made in the USA, not to mention the 10-year warranty. Try it risk-free with a 60-day money-back guarantee. What have you got to lose besides back pain and shoulder pain? Right now, America's First News has a great deal. Try it for yourself. Call now. You'll get 50% off a four-pack. That's two premium pillows and two travel pillows. Call now, 800-716-4835. Use the promo code ray ray that's 800-716-4835 use the promo code ray do you worry a lot if you're forgetful nervous moody or overwhelmed chances are you're not protecting yourself from the ravaging effects of stress and anxiety 
No matter the cause, ongoing stress and elevated levels of the stress hormone cortisol can rob your memory, your health, your quality of life, and your future. Now you can combat the effects of stress and anxiety while improving your memory and recall at the same time with the dietary supplement Calm and Clever. Studies show that the ingredients in Calm and Clever reduce cortisol by as much as 30% in as little as one to two weeks and increase your ability to recall facts, names, and numbers in four to 12 weeks. Calm and Clever was created by scientist Kurt Hendricks, a principal investigator in two NIH-funded studies on Alzheimer's disease. Try Try Common Clever for two months. You'll feel the difference. Call 1-800-758-8746 or go to calmandclever.com. Around the world for decades have come high strangeness reports of mysterious aerial lights, beams, animal mutilations, human abductions, secret space and military programs focused on an alien presence. One reporter of these Earth Mysteries is Emmy Award-winning TV producer, writer, and editor, Linda Moulton Howe. She reports and edits the science, environment, and real X-Files news website, earthfiles.com. We are moving from the paradigm that we are alone in the universe to a new one in which we are not alone. And something out there is interacting with us, our animals, and plant life, forcing glimpses of other realities upon us. Linda has produced four large books about these phenomena with hundreds of color images and illustrations that reviewers such as New York Times best-selling author Jim Mars describes as an amazing accumulation of evidence. All her books, An Alien Harvest, the two-volume Glimpses of Other Realities, and Mysterious Lights and Crop Circles, along with documentaries, are available in the shop at earthfiles.com. Not on my watch, our military service members say, as they volunteer to serve, as they move out, stand firm, and take fire. So not on our watch, we say, to the severely ill or injured veterans who can't get the care they deserve to live full and independent lives, even when there's no government funding or a nursing home seems like the only option. We won't leave one warrior behind. Not on our watch. Join us at findwwp.org. Your contact for current news and trending topics. KGRARadio.com. You're listening to Phenomenon Radio Live on KGRA Digital Broadcast Station, Salt Lake City, Utah, Van Buren, Arkansas. Before we begin hour two of tonight's amazing interview with Brian S. Right here on Phenomenon Radio Live, it's time for the news. Brought to you by EarthFiles.com. Here's Linda Moulton Howe. Linda? Thank you, Race. Recently, in the week of October 14th to 20th of this year, the 19th World Festival of Youth and Students from many different countries met in Moscow and Sochi, Russia. The goal was to urge young people all over the world to network as friends instead of to divide as enemies. On the closing day, Russian leader Vladimir Putin warned in a public speech that was put out on television that humanity is, quote, playing God with genetic code. One may imagine that a man can create a man, an android, 
not only theoretically, but also practically, he said, close quote. Putin told the students that scientists are now can create a, gen a genius mathematician, a brilliant musician, and, quote, can create a soldier that can fight without fear, compassion, regret, or pain. What I have just described, said Putin, might be worse than a nuclear bomb. And humanity could enter and most likely will in the near future a very difficult and very responsible period of its existence, close quote. Putin said he sees a future in which scientists will develop genetically modified troops and announced that he wants to see stronger international regulations on AI technology before artificial cyborg armies are activated around the world that are stronger, faster, and more lethal than any human being. Earlier in 2017, Russia did unveil a prototype for a new exoskeleton armor designed to make Russian troops stronger. The all-black garb has built-in advanced technology that will allow troops to lift heavier equipment and march longer distances before getting tired. The new exoskeleton armor is also described as bulletproof and was developed by the Russian state-owned Central Research Institute for Precision Machine Building. Now, Putin's warning about an AI existential threat is the same uh, warning that Elon Musk, the owner and CEO of Tesla and SpaceX, has repeated over and over in 2017. At the final session of the National Governors Association meeting in July, Musk told a group of 30 governors that the development of robots, androids, and cyborgs with artificial intelligence is, quote, a fundamental risk to the existence of human civilization. I think on the artificial intelligence front, I have exposure to the most cutting edge of AI, and I think people should be really concerned about it. I keep sounding the alarm bell, but until people see robots going down the street killing people, they don't know how to react. But once there is awareness, people will be extremely afraid, as they should be. Robots will be able to do anything. This is really like the scariest problem to me. Close quote, Elon Musk. This is Linda Moulton Howe. Please stay tuned to Earth Files news updates on KGRA Radio and visit every day my science, environment, and real X-Files news website, earthfiles.com. For more on breaking stories about our universe, this solar system, and the planet we live on. And that's the news brought to you by earthfiles.com. Now back to the interview. Linda? We left off before the break I remember when we first did an interview, you were describing how really seriously weird it was to see men in suits and ties at McMurdo. Can you take us now into that room again and describe them? And if you can, to remember some of the words that they specifically said. Yeah, um, we were we were put into that room just like the the uh, the that time that happened to the crew I was with uh, 10 years ago or 10 years prior to that. Um, 
the um, the two gentlemen that came in uh, were dressed in parkas. They they had uh, black uh, suit type pants uh, with uh, the um, waterproof type uh, black uh, footwear, and uh, one of them, as, as I can remember, was had a very stern look on his face. The other guy that came in with him, he was he reminded me of of the character Barney Fife. Okay, so it was almost like a Mutt and Jeff type team, uh, and not quite the good cop bad cop type thing. But you know, one guy you know looked serious, and the other guy was like, "Oh, oh hum, I'm here," you know. So uh, the guy that had the stern look on his face, kind of like did most of the talking, uh, but he looked at us. And he was saying, okay, um, you guys went out and, and you got got these guys uh, out of Marie Birdland and you brought them back here. And uh, I, I'm assuming that nobody talked to you, right? And we kind of looked at each other and goes, well, you know, our aircraft commander looked at that, that gentleman and said, uh, so how did you know that nothing was said? And he says, well, I just know. And uh, the other guy, the the guy that kind of looked like Barney Fife, uh, he, he kind of – gave a little smile and shook his head agreeing with his partner, you know, and, uh, and then, then the, uh, uh, the, the stern looking guy, uh, he decided that, uh, he was going to let us know in no certain, certain terms that we were not supposed to talk, um, about what happened. Uh, we were not supposed to talk about the first time we went out when they had not, uh, uh, communicating with McMurdo and was, uh, uh, MIA, and so uh, he said uh, that we weren't uh, ever to repeat what uh, what had happened, and uh, we looked at him in uh, kind of in disbelief, and I said, like, "You don't want us to really talk about this stuff, huh?" He says, "No, nothing to talk about. It's a it's a non-event." <laughs> so that was the ex- extent of that conversation. The, those two guys then uh, uh, looked at us each each one of us again, and uh, they turned around without saying anything and left the room. And <laughs> that was the end of that discussion. Brian, they didn't again have any of you sign a non-disclosure agreement. Why do you think that they are just trying verbal intimidation and not making it stick with NDAs? Um, in my opinion, I think they didn't want to make a deal of it because if they ain't made a big deal of it, then that would have us you know, even more curious about what had gone on. So it was basically, you know, it was, uh, yeah, we really don't want you to talk about it. Uh, okay. Yeah, sure. Fine. Okay. That's it. And so I think if they had been, you know, you got to sign this, you know, the, you know, if you, uh, you say anything about this and you violate this non-disclosure, uh, we're going to put you in uh, Leavenworth, that kind of thing. Right. You know, I don't think, I don't think they wanted to go there. I think they just wanted it to be, a. um, you know, kind of like a slap on the wrist type thing. Now, remember, we're all military. So we have we had an oath that we had to obey anyways. And a lot of us, especially the flight crew, had secret clearances that we had to in order to operate and, and take um, those uh, scientists out on their missions that uh, they had on the continent. So we were kind of bound by that anyways. Uh, but, but did you guys end up talking with other crews after that event and you heard even more rumors about the possibility of scientists working with ETs out under the ice? Yeah, we'd, uh, 
had uh, some discussions and I had some discussions. I, I don't know if the rest of my crew did, but I had talked to some of my fellow engineers and loadmasters that I had flown with on training missions back, uh, back home and, and had done some missions with them in the, in the years after the, of the whole sighting and prior to the uh, scientists disappearing. And, you know, we're all friends and kind of in, in confidence, you know, we told each other, things and the other guys were would tell me that uh they had some kind of suspicion that there was um something going on at pole and uh and when i was discussing the uh lost scientists one of my guys uh, one of my friends uh, told me that uh, yeah he kind of got that impression too because they had brought a science team back not from marie birdland but from another area of the continent on the western uh, side of antarctica he said they had brought back some people and and the equipment that they had taken out there was left, which is unusual because that stuff is expensive and all that stuff comes back to McMurdo and it gets shipped back on a on a on a freighter back to the United States. I mean, they don't leave anything out there, but all their stuff was left, which I thought was kind of unusual. It's kind of, and I asked him, he says, well, why do they leave all their stuff out there? And he says, they didn't say they just they just said, let's get on the plane and uh, we're going back. It was kind of like one of those hurry up it. He didn't mention about anything, though, about whether anybody looked frightened or had an experience or anything. But uh, his party that he brought back, they un unusually left all the equipment out on the continent. And the uh, was there also a rumor that the equipment that had been quarantined by the group that you guys brought back, that it went to some place like Wright-Patterson in the United States? That I don't have any uh, definite um, info on. Um, I uh, at that time <clears throat> I had some friends that were uh, that I knew that were back in the United States that were in the military and and one of them was uh, uh, somebody that worked um, uh, with uh, the Naval Investigation Service and uh, he had he had mentioned to me when I got back because I told him about this. Now this is a couple years later. Okay, this wasn't immediately after the the uh, the occurrence with this missing scientist. He had said that uh, he had heard of heard about what had happened the missing scientist, and that uh, you know some of that stuff that uh, came back off the off the continent that the scientists had for their equipment uh, was uh, shipped off to a base in uh, Ohio. So. And that yeah, that's what I thought. And the the base in Ohio that has received exotic equipment for how many years? At least seventy since forty uh, seven. Uh, that would be Wright Patterson. Yeah. So uh, I mean, he didn't say Wright Patterson, but he said Ohio. So it, the assumption would be that what had to have been Wright Patterson, if they took stuff back that was on the continent to the not the original place that the equipment came out of. That would kind of uh, trigger a, uh, a response where it's like, oh, well, that must have been right pat, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing, I, only base I know it's in Ohio. And you and I know that there is even modern day significance to what happened around those missing scientists. And let's hold it off for a little bit more because I think it would be important in our evolution of the phenomena that you guys kept seeing that over the Trans-Antarctic Mountain, which runs like almost like a divider between the east and the west of Antarctica, 
it is so interesting to me that it was over that bone, if you want to say that spine through that continent, that repeatedly you and your C-130 crew would see silver glinting craft. Can you now take us into the the first and second and third, the, this combination of all these things that you kept seeing and the fact that they wouldn't go over the Beardsmore Glacier as if there was territorial agreement of something. So start right. with that very first trip when you all were seeing all of this. Okay, now remember this, the when the missing scientist was during the... Um, uh, it was yeah. the mid-1994 to 95. And yeah, then, 94, 94 to 95 season. Now, um, and now we're would, to, 90, it, to 96. Right, 95, 96. So it was the following season, uh, which was the season just before my last one, because my last season uh, before I retired was the uh, 96, 97 season. Um, that season, uh, again, flying with the same crew, because we were on we were on the continent and doing missions, so we all flew together all the time, and we were doing a normal run to South Pole. And I'd been to South Pole quite a few times, uh, over three hundred uh, trips to and from South Pole. South Pole was like a milk run for us. It was a, uh, you know, take cargo and fuel to South Pole, take scientists, bring scientists back from South Pole, bring cargo back from South Pole. Um, <laughs> we even had aircraft that uh, we called the garbage truck run because that's all we did is we, we took uh, food and supplies to pole and brought back garbage. So uh, uh, that was uh, kind of like the highlight of our, of our missions was, Hey, we got the garbage run today. You, and that means no passengers. So <laughs> talking cargo, we called them. Yeah. And in um, those uh, 300 trips to pole uh, in that first email you sent me, uh, you said, uh, as a flight engineer, that you had flown more than 4,000 hours there. Right, 4,000 flight hours in the C-130 in my career. Um, quite a bit. I mean, when, when we're flying missions every day, uh, minimum mission there is six hours. Uh, a lot of them were um, uh, eight and ten hours because you would have to fly uh, distance uh, out to a camp um, from uh, McMurdo, and you would have to – uh, offload their cargo and sometimes you were doing two two runs to the same camp in one day so your days were like 12 hours and a lot of that was the flight time so you chalk up a lot of uh, a flight time when you're in a c-130 now you know when you're flying from christchurch to mcmurdo or mcmurdo to christchurch you know that's at least a six and a half hour flight and can be up to nine hour flight one way because of wind so you know being an engineer you know you're you can you can really rack up the flight time, and in my in my career as an engineer on 130s, it was uh, at 4,000 hours, a little over 4,000 hours of accumulated flight time. And so, on that we get to 95 uh, to 96, and you all are doing some of these runs and talk about what happened over the Transantarctic Mountain. Yeah, one of the trips. Um, I kind of got off on a tangent with that other stuff. Uh, one of the trips that we're going from McMurdo to Pole was just a regular, what we call a milk run. And we were taking people and uh, cargo up there and, and fuel. And so we were normal route was to take off from McMurdo, fly over Minna Bluff, which is one of the lands landmarks that we, we knew we were on course and then fly to the uh, 
east side of the Transantarctic Mountains, which happened to be actually uh, almost over the entire length of the Beardmore Glacier, because the Beardmore Glacier runs um, alongside the Transantarctic Mountain Range. Uh, the Transantarctic Mountain Range ends uh, uh, probably about 150, 200 miles short of the South Pole. So you get up on the, the, the pole, the plateau up there at South Pole, then there's no mountains whatsoever. We were coming up um, past the Transantarctics. Uh, we were just east of that mountain range, and we're we're probably around 25,000 feet or so altitude. And one of the uh, loadmasters in the back, he uh, was looking out the window, and he's like looking down the Transantarctics, you know, and seeing what he could see. And he saw some glimping glimpses of uh, light, reflections of something. And he ca called me and said, "Say, uh, hey, Ange, uh, come back here and look at this." So I got out of my seat and went back there and looking out the window. And I said, what are you looking at? And he says, look at that down there. And he says, see those little flashes? And I says, and I started looking around. No, I don't see anything. And he says, oh, no, no, over here. Go over to the left a little bit. See on the top of the, by the mountain peaks? And I'm looking. I says, oh, yeah, I see them now. Uh, and I say, told him, he says, what do you think those are? And I says, he says, I don't know. And all of a sudden, there was a group of maybe four or five of these glints. And they were right over the top of the Transantarctics, and you could see them reflecting the light. And I got to look at them a little bit closer and a little bit closer, and they started becoming bigger, which to me was an indication that they were climbing in altitude. But they still stayed over the Transantarctics. And I'm looking at them, and it's like, you know, that looks like discs or, and I kind of jokingly said, flying saucers. And he looked at me, and he kind of smiled, and he goes, well, that's what I thought too, but I wasn't going to say anything because I thought you, I thought maybe you think I was a nuts or something. I says, no, that's what it looks like. And then the formation of the discs, the lead one, the one in the front, would make a dash toward this other mountain peak, and then the other ones would all follow, and they would all stop next to the the lead uh, disc, and then they would dart off in another direction. One would go, and then the other ones would follow, and then surprisingly enough, one of one of them took off that was in the back of the group, wasn't the leader. He took off in one direction and two of the discs went with him and the others went the opposite direction over and the entire time over the Transantarctics. And uh, it was kind of unusual because at no time did they ever approach our aircraft or did they ever venture over the Beardmore Glacier. And um, that, 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 that duration for that sighting, which is the first one, I would say was probably about 10 minutes. They were kind of pacing us, going with us, but they were staying over the Transantarctics. And then we got to the end of the Transantarctic mountain range, and we were over the, uh, the polar plateau, and they stayed over the Transantarctics, and we continued on to South Pole Station uh, to, to uh, uh, do our mission. So we and, got – go ahead. And, and this – you this happened more than once, and each time you would you all wondered why is it that whatever these silver discs are, they can do ninety degree turns, stop, and that aren't coming up to you, but they never went over the Beardsmore Glacier. It, it, it began to be an impression that maybe there was a territorial consideration. Yeah, I, well, I didn't think that at the time. Um, you know, I would have thought if, you know, they had seen our aircraft that maybe they would have been curious or whatever and they would have, like, come up and joined us in formation or something like that. But after, now getting back to this mission to Pole, we did our mission to Pole and was coming back. 
we were at about the same spot on the Transantarctic, and I saw those discs down around the peaks again. And they were, like you say, they were doing uh, 90 degrees uh, turns, and they were coming to a stop, and it was they were doing follow the leader type uh, formations, and uh, um, they basically were pacing us again. But we were going south back toward McMurdo, and uh, they were. They, they were there. I mean, it was a bright, sunny day, very reflective uh, uh, craft, whatever they were, wherever they were, they were flying down there, disc-shaped. And uh, uh, that was the first time that uh, we had seen them in, uh, uh, during our, one of our missions on the ice. And uh, did you ever end up talking with any of those people during your, like when you were hanging out or having food uh, about those specific silver discs? I was remembering that somebody else had told you that they had seen them too. Yeah. There was one other engineer who had had an experience. Um, I'm not going to mention his name. Um, I haven't seen him since I was in the squadron with him, but he had said that his crew had had an experience uh, similar to that uh, on their way to the pole and that they had seen something flying um, down around there. Now he didn't uh, uh, expound on what exactly, how many or what he saw, but he said he saw a craft maneuvering uh, around the tops of the uh, transantarctics on their way to South Pole. Now everybody has to understand that on that continent, <clears throat> the only flying aircraft were the, aircraft that were operated by the United States Navy in, in uh, Antarctic Development Squadron, 6 Squadron, and that no other aircraft were down there. Now, <clears throat> during that season, earlier in the season, before we even started flying, uh, one of the officers in the squadron, we happened to be talking about uh, seeing things down there, you know, you know, it's like, I wonder what we're going to see this time, you know, uh, you know, we're going to we're going to see any uh, penguins or anything like that down there up at pole or whatever. And we all kind of laughed. And the one officer in a very uh, a serious tone said, well, if we see anything down there, we're not supposed to say anything about it. OK, what does that mean? And he didn't say anything else. So then the sightings of the of the discs down there happened after that during that season. So that kind of makes sense is that maybe information was given to the officers or certain officers in the squadron as a, as a briefing so that uh, if something was cited that we weren't supposed to say anything or, or talk about that or tell anybody else. So, but during those sightings that uh, our crew had seen, we didn't even tell anybody else. We never radioed that we saw them. Uh, nothing went out over the airwaves and the radios that, uh, we had seen an unidentified flying object down there. We all kept our mouths shut. So there was no contact by any um, other intelligence agency personnel like that happened the other times. So uh, nobody was nobody told us that uh, we couldn't talk about that. And uh, that, that was pretty much the end of that discussion uh, with the crews other than that one guy that my fellow engineer who had his crew had had found uh, or had sighted something flying in that same general area. So is it fair to say after 20 years working as a naval flight engineer with all of this work in Antarctica that you left the naval service, you had never been asked to sign NDAs, you had certainly been given warning, but that you left your naval career 
in Antarctica with a conviction that there was something not human at or under the Antarctic ice? <clears throat> well, at, at the time that I retired, um, it's um, un unbelievable or not, it's, I never even thought about that afterwards. Okay, it wasn't until um, all the um, uh, talk and, and reporting of of uh, what was going on in Antarctica and and what really jogged my memory or my memories was the uh, 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 the deal going on at uh, the Vostok station with that drilling rig that was going down uh, through that ice into that uh, lake that they found. Um, down under the ice. That's what triggered me to go, well, you know, all that stuff that I saw, and I'm start, finally starting to remember it. And it's like, yeah, I remember all this stuff. That kind of makes sense with what's going on at Vostok now. And and then I was reading articles on the on that um, uh, British uh, documentary crew, and we've talked about this, that uh, did that documentary down there, and uh, they ended up uh, coming up missing. Um yeah, and that was called the Atlantis Mapping Project for the BBC, allegedly. Right. This right. was a crew that was working on this British documentary, and uh, it was a newspaper article that appeared in around 2002. It was April 13, 2002, and it was entitled U.S. Denies, in quotes, Spectacular Ruins in Antarctica captured on video. This actually made a news article, April 13, 2002. And in this uh, article, it said the US government said it will seek to block the airing of a video found by Navy rescuers in Antarctica that purportedly reveals that a massive archeological dig is underway two miles beneath the ice. And when I saw that, I thought of Lake Vostok, that the drilling might have something to do with opening up something that they've already had 15 or 20 years of knowing that there was an archaeological site there. And then this article went on to say the, village, the video was allegedly the property of a Beverly Hills company called Atlantis TV that produced this Atlantis mapping project channel for the BBC in London until the year 2015 when it was all closed down. Now, the March 2002 news release said that the Atlantis TV crew had, and this is underscored, disappeared and that two U.S. Navy officers had found the missing production crew's videotape in an abandoned supply dump 100 miles west of Vostok Station, again reinforcing that that is where this archaeological site is supposed to be, and that there was also something near the South Pole. In, this is going back to the 2002 article. The press relief said the video showed a pyramid and other spectacular ruins and things that they could not go into. Allegedly, Navy SEALs came in one or more helicopters to take objects away from this archaeological site under the ice. Officials of the U.S. Naval Support Task Force in Antarctica 
denied the story and said the Navy did not possess any video shot by the missing Atlantis TV crew. But at the same time, there was another U.S. legal action to block the release of a hardcover book entitled Raising Atlantis by Tom Greenius that was supposed to be a novel based on fact. The book is about a secret U.S. military expedition that discovers ancient ruins two miles beneath the ice in Antarctica. The government allowed the first ebook version in the spring of 2002 to be released with sensitive information about U.S. underground installations. But the fall of 2002 hardcover was blocked until the sensitive information was deleted. Now, could there be a link, Brian, between that big ice hole that you guys flew over on trying to do that medevac to Davis uh, back in the 85-ish time period and, and the missing Na National Science Foundation scientist a decade later and this 2002 Atlantis mapping project? I think they're all connected in somehow. Now, if you look at where Vostok is and South Pole is and where that uh, uh, food cache was, was located, where they found the tape, um, it, it, there, it's conceivable that, that there's a connection between those two. Okay, um, my conviction, which you asked me earlier, if I, if I yeah. thought that this was, uh, you know, a very possible thing with, um, you know, an extraterrestrial civilization um, under the ice at South Pole, I, I absolutely believe that. You know, things things um, that I've experienced, you know, kind of all make connections. You know, my my time down there, what I experienced, the the scientists missing in Marie Birdland. Um, I, I actually, and I had mentioned this to you a little while, a couple weeks ago, that I actually had been to Vostok Station. We took an aircraft in there. I actually got to see the drilling rig, go inside the building and look at that. But this was long before uh, all this news came out of there about them uh, finding that uh, that uh, lake buried underneath all that ice. When I when I was there, they were just drilling ice core samples. They weren't doing anything. They weren't looking for anything at that time. And I actually got to see some of the ice core samples they had, they had stored in one of the buildings there. So this could is very possible that this could all be connected. The things that the reported that are being found down there, uh, buildings like you were talking about. Um, you know, ancient ruins and uh, artifacts that uh, are being pulled out of there and, and hidden or put in um, government facilities, you know, for study uh, from what's reported. So, yes, I'm very, I'm very uh, um, convinced that uh, that there is a presence down there uh, and that uh, we need to know about it. The whole question about why this would be kept from us, goes to the heart of the issue of why there has been a policy of denial by the United States government and the allies of World War II about their discovery that there is an alien presence on this planet. It is not just one thing. There are multiple and there may be mixed agendas. And the sensitivity of all of this is what we're all trying to leverage open. And that goes right to the heart of what happened with you, me, your nephew, and a friend. We, You and I had never met in the matter world until 
Thursday evening, June 2nd, 2016. All of our discussions have been on the phone up to then. And then you guys uh, came and uh, we all met at the Contact in the Desert Conference in Joshua Tree, California, uh, that evening to go out to dinner and to talk, June 2nd, 2016. And your nephew, Kelly, was with us. His friend was there. And we uh, went to that noisy restaurant. It had a lot of tile. And we talked in there about many different things and felt that um, that we were in what's called a white noise zone that is not easy to penetrate, we didn't think, from satellites or listening devices. And when we left the restaurant it was still warm and it was so nice and your suv was uh, uh where there were trees and as a group we decided that we would continue to talk out there at the suv under the trees and we stayed talking till probably another couple hours it was midnight or one o'clock and right. we uh you guys took off for your respective Arizona and other homes. And I was working uh, contact speaking through to my uh, Monday, June 6th, you're back at work. And I am picked up in a vehicle to take me to the Palm Springs airport to come back. And I'm in the car and the phone rings and it's your nephew saying you won't believe this, but my uncle Brian got a call at his office from somebody in the government. Can you now pick up with the details of why that was so unusual that you would even get a phone call <laughs> where you worked from anybody? Yeah, um, that Thursday that we met at that, that restaurant and then talked afterwards in the parking lot till about almost 12.30, um, I was at contact then until Sunday afternoon and, uh, my nephew, he had gone home that, uh, Friday, the following Friday contact actually started on Friday. So we were doing this talk at the restaurant and, and, um, Thursday, well, night. Thursday night, which was just, was contact hadn't started yet. Yeah. So I kept, came home on Sunday and, uh, uh, uh went to work on Monday and, I'm sitting uh, at my at my desk and and you're uh, in a uh, aerospace related company where you do not normally get any outside we'll call them public phone calls and that you have to have a clearance to work there. Right, exactly. And uh, actually, I don't even have a company phone. The a, a phone call came in to me about ten o'clock in the morning uh, on my personal cell phone. And I didn't recognize the number, but I thought maybe it was uh, my nephew or or somebody that was that was calling me. So I answered the phone, and I said hello, you know. And, she, and the voice on the other end, which is a, it was a male voice, um, said, "Is this Brian?" I says, "Yeah, this is Brian. Uh, who am I talking to?" And he says, "Well, there's some people that." Uh, are kind of upset that uh, you've been talking about uh, certain things and they would rather not uh, rather you not discuss any of that stuff that you were talking about. I says I don't I don't understand. Well, what are you talking about? Well, um we know that uh, you and uh uh your nephew and uh Linda Moulton Howe were uh having uh, a dinner on Thursday this last Thursday at uh, during the contact at the, in the desert 
conference and that you were out in the parking lot until about 1230 talking. I says, well, <laughs> he, you know, there was not anybody else around. How did you know that occurred? And the voice on the, on the other hand said, well, you know, uh, what we do is what we do. And we pretty much know everything that goes on. I said, really? Yeah. And they said, the people that, uh, that I'm associated with really don't want you talking anymore about the missing scientists that you had, uh, encountered, um, years back. I said, well, how do you know about that? And the guy said, same thing. He says, we pretty much know everything. I said, okay. And he said, so stop talking. And then the phone went click and there was nobody on the other end. So I'm looking at my cell phone, you know, and the, and the number comes up and I'm looking at the phone number and I go, I don't recognize this phone number. So I was at my computer and I quickly went in, you know, and, and Googled the search for that phone number. And it came back as the general phone number of the NSA in Fort Meade, Maryland. And I went, oh, really? This is kind of scary. Somebody is surveilling me. And they know what went on at a private conversation uh, that we we had last Thursday. So um, I called my nephew and told him what happened. And then obviously he called you and uh, told you that uh, what had happened. And then I finally got a hold of you and, and told you what had happened. Right. And I asked you, I said, is this a problem are, are you worried about a repercussion and i'll never forget when you said i'm never going to back off from talking with you or being able to talk about the missing scientists the hole in the ice the silver discs what appears to be definitely be an alien presence in antarctica they never had me sign a non-disclosure agreement Right. That's exactly what I said. But I also, you also asked me, you, you asked me, why do you think that they called you? And I says, well, I kind of have a gut feeling, Linda, that uh, that they were trying to send a message to you through me, <laughs> you know, because you really dig into everything. I mean, you get right down into the nitty gritty of, of the information. And I think in some way that they were trying to send a message to you, you know, to leave the subject alone. Well, it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very obvious. Uh, would you have ever suspected that we were being spied upon and listened to in both the restaurant <clears throat> and where we talked, <clears throat> excuse me, on that grass near the parking lot? No, I, I don't even know how it was possible unless they had I, – I know that certain government agencies have the capability of listening in um, with satellites now and that they could uh, focus in on an area and and through some type of technology they can, can hear what you're saying. So it's a possibility that that is what occurred, but they may have had something – they may have had surveillance – um, in the area, knowing that you were going to be there and other people 
uh, during the contact in the desert. And the, the restaurant we were eating at wasn't too far away from Joshua Tree, the actual venue. So it, it's possible that could have, could have happened. So, but, but I don't know. It's, it's just kind of eerie and kind of unnerving that, you know, somebody knew exactly what we were talking about. Right. And it, it is as if we were monitored and we are supposed to be American citizens protected by the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And we are not doing anything that is wrong. Oh, no, I agree with you. It, it, but, you know, there's there's uh, the there's the factions of the government that, uh, you know, don't play by the rules. I mean, there's the there's the dark side of our government and then there's the the constitutional side of our government. And unfortunately, some of the uh, the intelligence agencies, they play on the dark side. So they don't follow uh, the law and they have their reasons, however they think that it's OK for them to do that. What is your own perspective now in November of 2017 about what Antarctica might be in terms of proof of alien artifacts, an alien presence that is still there, and the whole question of why the United States government with the allies of World War II that encountered this during World War II, the Nazis and Hitler were talking about and implying that they had advanced technologies in Pianamunde that were related to some collaboration with uh, a star system and non-humans and related to Hitler's wanting to put tall, blonde, blue-eyed people all over the planet. What is your perspective on the whole last 70 years of so much uh, suppression, so many policies of denial and lies, and what seems to be happening now? Well, uh, in my opinion, I think this all this all started back uh, when Admiral Byrd had his task force uh, go down there and uh, and and uh, try and find out what was going on with the uh, with the Nazis um, after World War II. Little America was put in there. That was the first American station that was put on the continent, and that was on the western side of the Antarctic continent. Um, the the um, supposedly rapid retreat of his task force out of there, uh, uh, supposedly by um, flying vehicles that were of high technology that no one had seen before, uh, possibly a, a, an ET presence then. And then it's, I think they've been down. I think an ET presence has been in that continent for a very, very long time. Uh, Antarctica used to not have ice. It used to be a dry, barren continent, and there wasn't any ice until until something happened uh, millions of years ago and that it swapped it around. And um, you know that you have to go back at least 33 million years before it's dry? Right, right. But they've done enough um, by satellites in the recent years that they can map out, actually see through the ice and see the actual landmass that's there, not just the ice-covered top of it. And it's 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 a continent, you know, and it could have been livable back millions of years ago. And they are that alien presence or intelligence maybe came back, came to this planet that far back 
and developed a, a an installation or a a base uh, for studying the uh, Homo sapiens sapien, or harvesting from the planet like an ongoing. Uh, we'll say a trade route that takes stuff from this planet and it's been doing that for a very long time and it would explain uh, you and Corey Good and others are not the only people who have had information about very long tunnel-like structures. Uh, Probably deep ice-penetrating radar has seen them, uh, that there are structures. And if there are structures it's possible that they are inhabited now and that it isn't something from the past. They've been able to use and evolve with whatever the climate has changed on the planet. And that makes this intriguing question. This feels like such a revolutionary time. We all are waiting impatiently for the headlines. We're not alone in this universe. The remote viewers have said for years the universe is teeming with life. Some are allies and some not. But that to keep moving through the 21st century without being told the truth about what the true history of our planet is and what the relationship is to other intelligences out there that use this planet while humans are kept in the dark, it just isn't fair. It isn't right. We should know what the government's of this planet, no. Right, I I totally agree with you. It's uh, you know, this started back. Some of it started back during the Roswell incident. I think the the uh, powers to be at that time, the government, uh, the military, thought that the United the, the U.S. Uh, citizens, the people of this planet, couldn't handle the idea of an, another life form other than uh, the human life form, and that uh, it would disrupt. Uh, the uh, the status quo as far as religion goes, um, I, I think that started then that they kept it quiet to protect the American people, and I think it just was perpetuated the entire all these years just to keep it quiet and and set up that disinformation uh, network so that people that like me and and uh, other people have seen things they they don't want to uh, let it out they don't want that the information out. So um, I think um, if I can touch on this real quick, um, the uh, trip that uh, uh, Kerry, Secretary Kerry and Buzz Aldrin did in Antarctica this last year um, with uh, their visit uh, where Kerry was taken. He was taken out onto the continent. It wasn't just in McMurdo. And what Buzz Aldrin had said after he was taken off the pole because he had become ill um, about that he'd seen the face of evil. Um, that kind of that kind of solidifies some things that I've been thinking about is that this presence that that is possibly down there and that has shown proof that it's down there may not be a a presence that we want to um, come in contact with if what uh, Buzz Aldrin was saying that it's an evil presence. Mm-hmm. And what would contain it, or what would be our ally, or is it encapsulated or does it serve its purposes and agenda for none of us to know? Those are questions that if we all knew the true answers, we might start becoming stronger standing in our own feet because in ignorance, there is weakness. Yes. I I totally agree with you. 
What do you think about what Buzz Aldrin, uh, he uh, did that tweet, I've seen the face of evil, and then what, within 24 hours, somebody tried to cover it up with a, this was just a joke uh, tweet, but the first tweet was from Buzz Aldrin, and that's what it said, and it made news. That's that disinformation uh, uh, method again, you know, it's the truth came out, he brought it out, Um you know, I, I totally believe what he said. You know, it's possible that um, when he was at the South Pole that that he went was taken out to the uh, installation that's uh, that's out under the uh, the ice, that uh, large hole that I saw back in the 80s. Uh, maybe he made made contact with that entity, those entities. And and maybe that's p part of the, the issue that uh that's why he became ill and, and, and had those health issues. And um, I, I don't think that uh, that Buzz Aldrin would have said something like that just as a joke. I don't, you know, yeah. he's a he, he was he was the second man to set foot on the moon. He's a professional, you know. He's uh, he was an aviator, uh, an astronaut, and um, you know he 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 just wouldn't make that. And so somebody else was trying to do the disinformation and cover up what he said. I would personally like to meet Buzz Aldrin and talk to him about that and share my experiences that I've had down there. You know, right. um, I, I doubt that will ever happen. You well, know? Uh, so if he's listening to this radio program. We would love to talk with Buzz Aldrin and we would do it confidentially if necessary. And yeah. it also goes to the heart of why it is that uh, a whole team of, of some 15 scientists would be so traumatized that when they had been missing for nearly two weeks and the C-130 comes to pick them up, that there was absolutely no reaction whatsoever to you and the crew. Right. I Back to what Buzz says, maybe they saw the face of evil. And, you know, and that's what they they had that that experience that would just terrify anybody. Well, we don't know for sure, but I do feel strongly that when you talk with somebody like Lynn Buchanan, who worked for the Defense Intelligence Agency at Fort Meade next to the shiny NSA building in the late 1980s and was on Phenomenon Radio a year and a half ago talking about when he remote viewed in some kind of a tasking uh, that was involved with other life and said the universe is teeming with life and some of it is friendly and some of it is not friendly. And that if we all on this planet could know the real truth about who the players are, what the agendas are, what is positive, what is negative, what is our true history, where are things headed, why is Elon Musk headed for Mars and keeps saying that he's going to take off in 2020, does it have something to do with getting humans on that planet while we are trying to figure out what's going on in Antarctica in our own planet? It is a time when truth and facts should be owed us. And I hope by doing a, a program like this with you, being able to see through your eyes and mind the experience of a C-130 crew in Antarctica with all of this high strangeness, and that what we're getting, hopefully, too, is opening up the truth that we're not alone in this universe, we never have been, and that it is high time in the 21st century that we are all told exactly 
what is known about the history of this planet that will affect the future that is going to unfold. Brian, thank you so much for being well, with us on Phenomena Radio. Well, I, I hope I was able to uh, uh, clarify some things, and I hope that uh, the the listeners actually understand more about what's going on down there and and what uh, what's possibly uh, going to come out of there. And how important it is to be able to share this. Thank you so much. Grace, take it away. All right, everyone. Next week on Phenomenon Radio, guess what? John Burroughs comes back. John will be joining Linda to discuss an in-depth interview with former Air Force OSI officer Richard Doty about Rendlesham and the 150 government files he says he's seen on the case. For John Burroughs, for Linda Moulton Howe, for our very special guest, Brian S., I am Race Hobbs, thanking all of you for listening. Thank everyone, especially in the chat room tonight. The classroom was really rolling with lots of good conversation and photographs being posted. The discussion was amazing. Stay tuned for three hours of Jimmy Church and Fade to Black Live right here on the station. That is your very best contact for paranormal radio topics on the Internet. We're KGRARadio.com. Mm-hmm.